0: This talk was given by Vanessa Zuisei-Goddard-Sensei. Zuisei-Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisei Thanks for listening. It is just as if a seeker traveling along a wilderness track were to see an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by people of former times. She would follow it. Following it, she would see an ancient city, an ancient capital inhabited by people of former times, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. She would go to address the queen or the queen's minister, saying, My lady, You should know that while traveling along a wilderness track, I saw an ancient path. I followed it. I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. My lady rebuild that city. And the queen or the queen's minister would rebuild the city so that at a later date, the city would become powerful, rich, and well-populated fully grown, and prosperous. In the same way, I saw an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? Just this noble, eightfold path, right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. That is the ancient path, the ancient road traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. I followed that path, and following it, I came to direct knowledge of aging and death, direct knowledge of the origination of aging and death, direct knowledge of the cessation of aging and death, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of aging and death. Knowing that directly, I have revealed it to monks, Nuns, male lay followers, and female lay followers, so that this holy life has become powerful, rich, detailed, well populated, widespread, proclaimed among celestial and human beings. This is the ancient path traveled by the Buddhas of old. This is the way to awakening. And first, let me acknowledge that I changed the gender of the characters in the, in the above simile of the Buddhas. It, it was a man, you know, traveling the path and meeting a king, and meeting the king's minister. So at first I changed the king to a queen. And when I got to the minister, I, my mind kept doing a kind of hiccup. I just I couldn't see, I thought, minister, and I thought... It was a guy. And it reminded me of this book by Ursula Le Guin, Left Hand of Darkness, where all the characters are hermaphrodites and they don't actually take on sex or gender until they are about to pair with another person. And it depends on their gender that they take on their own gender. And the king is a king and he's a he, but he's pregnant. And he often acts like a pregnant woman. He has morning sickness, and um, he often will cry uncontrollably. And so when you're reading these passages, your mind kind of does this little bit of a, of a hiccup. You have to adjust. And I remember I asked Kaijen about it, just what she thought. She loved Ursula Le Guin's books. And so I asked her about it, and she scoffed. You know how she did with her, with her hand? She was just like... Oh. She's trying to be a feminist, (laughs) and she was just disgusted. (laughs) And, and like I said, you know, she loved Ursula Le Guin's books, but every time she thought she was being anywhere near a feminist, she would just dismiss her. So then I just I went ahead and I changed the minister to a she. I thought of Margaret Thatcher, and I thought, well, it's possible. And then I said, well, I'll just go ahead and change the the traveler. You know, at first I was, I thought, maybe I should at least leave the traveler, you know, so I'll be more balanced. But, you know, the guys always get to go on these quests, and the women just stay at home doing the laundry or something. So I thought, no, that's not quite fair, so I'll just, I'll change the whole thing. But then I thought, you know, then the guys are not going to be able to identify. It's going to sound stilted. Exactly. Gentlemen, you're getting a taste. It's a very small taste of what we deal with all the time. So this noble eightfold path, the Buddha didn't, he didn't make it up. He didn't create it. He rediscovered it and he said that himself. Like this seeker following this ancient path to a great walled city. And the traveler goes back To the queen, to the ruler, and says, build, rebuild this city that I have seen. And the queen does, so that at a later date, this city will become powerful, rich, and well-populated, fully grown, and prosperous. We, too, become fully grown, following the Noble Eightfold Path. And... The, the path is um, divided into three subcategories. Right view or right understanding and right aspiration or right intention follow, um, fall under discernment or wisdom. And then right speech, right action and right livelihood fall under virtue or ethical conduct. And right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration fall under concentration or samadhi. And so I wanted to start at the beginning with right view. And the Buddha said: just as the dawn is the forerunner and first indication of the rising of the sun, so is right view the forerunner and first indication of wholesome states. And ideally, all eight of these factors, of these branches, um, are present simultaneously. But there's also a gradual component to them, and that's why it is a path. So one who has right view, right understanding of the way things are, gives rise to right aspiration, right intent. And having that right intent, then you go on to give, to, uh, to give rise to right speech, and so on. But right view is where it all begins. It is like the dawn breaking, like that light that illuminates everything. And right view has two aspects. A conceptual aspect, which is really a thorough grasp of the Buddha's teaching and and their meaning. So a more uh, intellectual understanding. And then it has an experiential aspect, wisdom that is derived from personal experience and practice. And conceptual understanding is critical because you can practice concentration till you're blue in the face. And without that grounding on the teachings, it becomes stilted and it becomes inflexible. But if it's just intellectual, then it's stale. You know, it's lifeless. And it's not very useful when it comes to liberation. So both of these aspects need to be present and need to be integrated, like we chant in the identity of relative and absolute like a box and its lid. In the Samadhirshi Sutra, Shariputra addresses the, the Sangha group of disciples, and he's uh, speaking directly of right view and he says or, or the sutra says thus have I heard on one occasion the blessed one was living at Shravasti in Jeddah's grove there the venerable Shariputra addressed the sangha thus friends friend they replied the venerable Shariputra said this in what way is a noble disciple one of right view whose view is straight who has perfect confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. And these sutras, you know we've, we've heard this before, there, there's always, they're, they're setting up the, the stage. It doesn't just launch into the teachings. There's, there's always a context and a setting. and it's helping the disciples to hear, to listen well. Friends. They address one another. You know, when they were speaking to the Buddha, they would call him Lord. But amongst themselves, they would call each other friends. It makes me think of a, a wedding ceremony. And that's the first, a traditional wedding ceremony that the, the priest, the first words, you know, dear friends or dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. And it, to me, it has that feeling of closeness, of intimacy. Of, of gathering in, of bringing together your attention, your presence. Like we do here, you know, for, for a Dharma discourse. There's the bells and the box preparing, you know, the zendo, letting us know that the altar is ready and the jisharyo is ready. And there's a the drum, so uh, slow and stately, That is saying, something important is about to begin. Don't miss it. And so the the, uh, disciples, um, Chariputra, I'm sorry, first, he he sets up the the question. He says, when a noble disciple understands No, I'm skipping one. He's basically saying, what is the question at hand, right? What is, what is the noble disciple who has the right view, whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma? And the rest of the group says, exactly, that's what we're here to learn from you. We've come from far away to learn from the Venerable Shariputra, the meaning of the statement. It would be good if the Venerable Shariputra would explain it. And having heard it from him, we will remember it. They confirm that this is, in fact, what they want to know, that they've traveled far, so they're in the right place. They brought themselves there. And they say, we want to hear what you have to say, and when we've heard it, we will remember it. We won't forget, and we won't lose sight of it. Because it's important. And Shariputra says, then, friends, listen and attend closely to what I shall say. As if he's saying, you know, don't miss the profound teaching, it's taking place all the time, but right now it's especially evident. Right now we're in agreement that this is what we're here for, and it's being put forth. And so then he says, this is, this is what, what right view is. When a noble disciple understands the unwholesome and the root of the unwholesome, understands the wholesome and the root of the wholesome, in that way, they're of right view. They're one whose view is straight, who has perfect confidence in the Dharma and has arrived at this true Dharma. So when you understand what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, and then you understand how they arise, their root, then your view is straight. It's not meandering. It's not vague. And then you have perfect, as in complete, as in whole, whole whole-bodied confidence in the Dharma. Then you've arrived at this true Dharma. Of course, we never left. But that's not our view. Yet. And then he says what each of these things is. What is unwholesome and what is wholesome, and what are the roots? And in essence, he's saying that what is um, wholesome, unwholesome, is breaking the precepts. You know, is killing, is lying, is misusing the body, and that the root of everything that is unwholesome are the three poisons of greed, anger, and ignorance. And Conversely, what is uh, wholesome is following, the precepts. And the root is non-attachment, compassion, and wisdom, the three virtues. And then he says, Understanding the wholesome, the unwholesome, and how these are created, a noble disciple abandons desire, aversion, and the conceit, I am. And by abandoning ignorance and arousing true knowledge, they here and now put an end to suffering. So abandoning the conceit, I am, desire and aversion don't stand a chance. I mean, That's what they are rooted in. That's what ignorance is rooted in. So it too doesn't stand a chance, abandoning this conceit, this fanciful notion of I am. In setting up this notion, I am, I immediately set up you are, and it is. Everything that is not me is separate. And in that, that gap between me and you, between me and it, aversion is born, and desire is born, and fear is born. I was reading a, an article by a woman by the name of Robin Wall Kimmerer, and she has a Native American roots. And she was saying she was studying the Anishinaabe language, and she was proposing a new pronoun for the earth, for the natural world, because she was saying the way we speak about the earth is what allows us to treat it the way that we do, to treat it the way that we do. And she says, Imagine if your grandmother was standing at the stove and somebody came in and said, Look, it's making soup. It has grey hair. And she says, We would be horrified. You know, such a grammatical error would be a profound act of disrespect, she says. It robs a person it robs a person of selfhood and of kinship, reducing them to a thing. I would argue that a thing deserves just as much respect as a person. But of course, that's not how we see it. And throughout our history, we've reduced groups of human beings, whole cultures, to it. And we have absolutely done it to the earth, to the natural world. It's right in the beginning. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. The view that establishes me at the center of everything. It's an old, old view. And so it won't yield overnight. And that's why, I, I, I think, that is why the Buddha is so systematic. He leaves no stone, stone unturned. And so you start right at the beginning, cultivate right view, the right understanding of yourself, of this world. And Kimmerer is suggesting, well, let's use language to help. Let's use a different pronoun for the earth. In, in the Anishinaabe language, the word for land is uh, ki. For us, ki means spirit, life force, and in Japanese, mind, energy. So it would also apply. So, so that would be the, the singular, ki, land. And for the plural, we could use the English word for kin. And she says, make no mistake, ki and kin are revolutionary pronouns. Words have power to shape our thoughts and our actions. On behalf of the living world, let us learn the grammar of animacy. So every time we say key, let our words reaffirm our respect and kinship with the more than human world. Let Let us speak of the beings of the earth as the kin they are. I read about a man who, who could fix pretty much every machine that they put in front of him. He worked in a, in a factory, and I think they made appliances. And they were interviewing some of his co-workers, and they were saying, you know, if Joe left, we'd have to close the plant, because he knows the inner workings of every single machine. You know, over 20 years, he has worked on every single one. And he was so good at his work that several times they tried to promote him and make him a manager. And he didn't want that. He wanted to stay on the floor. He wanted to touch the machines. And so somebody asked him, you know, how, how do you do this? And he said, well, they, sh- they have a life. They have a life, these machines. I just spent time with them, tried to understand them. And So for example, my, my wife's blender broke. I just asked myself, if I was this blender, what would be wrong with me? And I can usually find the problem, and so I just fix it. In All the Light We Cannot See, which I've quoted before, there's a, there's a young man like that, Wayner. He's been invited by the Nazis to, to join because of his skill with radios. And he's asked to go to a German officer's house to fix one of those huge radios, one of those uh, radios that has a console. And the officer has called all these engineers and, and um, electricians to try to fix it, and nobody has been able to fix it. And he heard about Weiner, and so he called him. And he looks at the radio. He's never seen a radio like this in his life, and he's only 18, So what he does is he goes to the back of it and he sits on the floor and just sits with the radio, just tracing the circuitry in his mind silently for about 20 minutes. And then he finds the problem and in two minutes it's fixed. When there is no conceit, I am, when there is no me and it, then everything is present. Everything is clearly, as clearly seen as it is. And Kimmer is, is arguing that words shape our thoughts and shape our actions. And of course thoughts shape our words, so it's a circle. And that understanding, my understanding of me, of you, of this, directly shapes the world. Rebecca Solnit uh, has several articles about um, after Katrina, during and after Katrina, how the press just whipped up this frenzy of fear and distrust by all the the images and, and articles about the looting that was happening, and it was usually people of color. And there was one image, especially, that she said that really got to her. And, and it was a, a guy who was on his stomach, hands behind his back, handcuffed because he had taken a can of evaporated milk. And she said, You know, these are people who lost everything. They're trying to survive. They're not looting, they're not taking just for the sake of taking. And she's been to Haiti after the earthquake, to Japan after the tsunami. And she said what she saw was quite the contrary, that in in disaster situations like that, people are actually incredibly willing to help, to put themselves out there, often for complete strangers. And so she said to look at it from a distance and say, this is what's happening Actually, she has an article that says words kill. These, these words are killing some of these people. And Shariputra says uh, other ways in which a disciple has right view is by understanding the four nutriments, which are physical food, Contact. so anything uh, that we touch through our senses in that moment of contact, mental volition, which is uh, feeling, the feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, perception, which allows us to recognize an object, and 50 other uh, mental formations and consciousness. So in essence, all the ways in which we perceive the world and take nourishment from it. One who understands right view understands the four noble truths. This is suffering. This is the root of suffering. This is the end of suffering. And this is the way to the end of suffering. They understand the 12-link chain of interdependent origination. Age and death. Birth. Becoming clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the six senses, body and mind, consciousness, formations, and ignorance. And of course, this is, it's a chain. It's a loop. And we keep going around this loop until one of the links is broken, until it's seen through. And it just takes a moment. It just takes an instant. That moment of saying, oh, my body. It's not mine. All this craving. It's empty. And in that moment, the chain dissolves. And again, as I, as I was just going through this, I was thinking just how, how thorough, how thorough and systematic the Buddha was. You know, there's nothing equivocal about these teachings. You know, he's saying quite clearly this is how suffering arises. This is how it passes away. So if you want to suffer, give rise. Feed what is unwholesome. If you want to put an end to suffering, give rise. Feed what is wholesome. But in case it's not clear, anything has been left out, then Shariputra ends with the uh, three taints, understanding the three taints, which are sensual desire being and ignorance and how do you put an end to them through the noble eightfold path another chain another loop except this is a chain of unbinding instead of imprisoning you this chain breaks all chains it it renders them useless That is what the Venerable Shariputra said. The disciples were satisfied and delighted in the Venerable Shariputra's words. I and mean, wouldn't it be great if at the end of every talk everyone was satisfied and delighted? But even then it wasn't, it wasn't so. In the refuge reading, the Tanisaru reading that we were doing for Ango, there's, also, there's a short discourse on right view. And this one is a householder, Anatha Pindika, he says that um, he went to wanderers of other persuasions who were staying. On arrival, he greeted them courteously. And after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat down to one side to discuss their various views. So it's a similar, similar beginning to the other one. He was speaking to wanderers of other persuasions. It reminded me of that um, Woody Allen movie. I couldn't remember which one it was. He's introducing himself to someone, to a woman at a party, and the subject of religion comes up. And she says, oh, I'm Christian. What about you? And he says, well, I was raised in the Hebrew persuasion, but now I subscribe to narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Anatha Pindika, he invites all the disciples to express their views. And they're talking about... um, life after death, and the soul, um, the cosmos. And you can tell that the Buddha was not present because he wouldn't have given them the time of day with those questions. He would have said, those are detours. Those are not the path. And they all go through each other, their views. And then at the end, he just simply says that what is brought into being is fabricated. It is willed, is dependently originated and impermanent. And that whatever is impermanent is suffering. And it says, and his listeners fall silent, abashed, sitting with their shoulders drooping, their heads down, brooding, at a loss for words, <laughs> and uh, sensing this, and Anathapindika just gets up and leaves. He just leaves them there. So this is the the beginning, the beginning of the noble path that the Buddha revealed to the monks and nuns and male and female practitioners so that this holy life would become powerful, rich and detailed. So it would be abundant like this great city, this great city in the middle of the wilderness. And he says the the forerunner of the path is right view. Which is basically saying understand. Understand how all life unfolds understand how your understanding affects everyone and everything and one who understands doesn't turn their pain into someone else's suffering understand how this conceit i am leads to i want i was going to rant about the apple watch But I won't. It just makes me so mad, you know. (laughs) All this brilliance, this human intelligence, just to make toys—you know, seventeen thousand dollars toys that can open your hotel door or program your toaster. (laughs) Like in the in the Lotus Sutra, you know. So the kids are, the house is burning. And the kids are too distracted. They're playing with their toys. So they don't even know that the house is burning. And the father, to get them out, lures them with more toys. It's the only thing that gets them out of the house. So I guess I ranted a little. (laughs) But, you know, he knew. And he didn't do the Apple Watch, Steve Jobs. But um, I read his biography. And he was a Buddhist. He was a Zen Buddhist. He studied with Coboncino. And so he knew the very well, very well. It's too bad he didn't want to put an end to it. And he said, you know, somebody asked him, why don't you do um, market research? And he said, because people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And he knew very well how to show it. It's right view brings reality into focus. It lets you know that the fire is burning and you don't have a lot of time. It reminds you that all dharmas are equally deserving of our respect. The Buddha said, just as the dawn is the forerunner and first indication of the rising of the sun... So is right view, the forerunner and first indication of wholesome states. We shouldn't take this for granted, you know, this rising sun, this light dawning. The fact, that, the fact that it happens every day makes it no less of a miracle. The fact that we can sit here like this, we can actually see each other, we can hear each other, that we can, if we want, if we really want to see everything clearly. And that's what session is for. And that's what we are here to do, isn't it? This is called Early Hour by Veslava Szymborska. I'm still asleep, but meanwhile facts are taking place. The window grows white, the darknesses turn gray. The room works its way from hazy space. Pale, shaky stripes seek its support. By turns unhurried, since this is a ceremony, the planes of walls and ceiling dawn. Shapes separate one from the other, left to right. The distances between objects irradiate. The first glints twitter on the tumbler, the doorknob. Whatever had been displaced yesterday, had fallen to the floor, been contained in picture frames, is no longer simply happening, but is. Only the details have not yet entered the field of vision. But look out, look out, look out. All indicators point to returning colors, and even the smallest thing regains its own hue, along with a hint of a shadow. This rarely astounds me, but it should. I usually wake up in the role of belated witness with a miracle already achieved, the day defined and dawning masterfully recast as morning. For more talks, to get information about Zuisei Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessaswiseigoddard.org.